Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Ahmed El-Gamal. Ahmed is a professor in the Department of Computer Science at Rutgers University, as well as director of the Art and Artificial Intelligence Lab there. Ahmed, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, I'd like to get started by having you share a little bit about your background and what brought you to an interest in kind of the space of digital humanities and this confluence of art and AI and more broadly, uh, your interest in computer vision. Yes. Um, so uh, my career has been around artificial intelligence for a long time, uh, in particular uh, computer vision. I'm a computer vision person, uh, but also have a long passion uh, for art uh, for a long time. And uh, as a computer vision person, I um, always find it very interesting that uh, um, uh, we uh, in computer vision look at images and can recognize um, cars and dogs and cats and, and men and women and things like that. But um, obviously, if you look at an artwork, um, uh, that's not what you're looking for. Um, uh, it's, it's much deeper. Um, uh, there are layers and layers of understanding uh, uh, of artworks that we do as, as human when you look at artworks. And also, um, not only the understanding, but uh, artwork affects us at the emotional level. So it's it's uh, much deeper than just uh, uh, what we do in computer science and computer vision. Uh, that always intrigues me, and and that um, uh, and, um, as a, as an AI person, I always find it very uh, very uh, interesting and very fascinating um, uh, because I really believe that AI is not only about driving a car or or playing chess uh, in order to have a machine that is intelligent at the level of human intelligence. Uh, um, the machine has to be able to understand uh, these creative products uh, like uh, art and music and, and uh, literature and, and jokes and, and not only understand them, but be able to create them as well. And uh, this is not something new, actually, since the beginning of AI, since the dawn of AI, um, uh, scientists has been trying to do that, have been trying to uh, create uh, art and create music and, and understand art and music. However, it has been very challenging um, uh, and I believe this is one of the important aspects to, to prove that AI is actually intelligent. One of your recent projects is uh, a tool called ICANN, which uh, is focused on generating art. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that project and ultimately the, the capabilities of that tool? Yes. Um, so in AI, um, in the last few years, uh, GAN came around, uh, Generative Adversarial Network, which is an amazing tool to uh, generate uh, um, images in particular, uh, given um, uh, some training sets. So GAN, by design, um, is supposed to um, uh, generate uh, uh, new samples uh, of some distribution. So if you give it images of cats, it will try to generate uh, more and more images of cats. And um, uh, some people have tried to use GANs before to, to make uh, art books, like you give it uh, 
portraits, uh, Renaissance portraits, for example, and try to generate these portraits. However, um, our understanding of art is very different. Um, I, I believe that art is about uh, innovation and, and making something novel. So if you just generate samples from the same distribution of art that you give it, it's not going to be art. It's not going to be called art. That's imitation of art. Uh, so um, you have to be creative. You have to uh, boost the machine to be creative. There's a whole field of um, uh, subfield of AI called computational creativity, where uh, scientists in that field has been uh, for a long time studying how to make um, the machine creative, how to uh, make a creative process, uh, uh, whether you are creating music or, or, or uh, artwork, visual art or, or literature or jokes or anything like that. Um, so my my goal is really was um, how can we change gangs to make it uh, creative. Uh, not just uh, simulating the solution, but uh, uh, pushing the envelope of, of uh, art uh, to make something new. And and then um, our long study of, of uh, these uh, issues in the lab helped us into formulating this problem. Um, so first we have to come up with a, th- about, uh, a theory about how art evolved to start with, uh, how artists make new art. Uh, obviously, these are theories, or there are several theories about that. The theory we used is coming from psychology um, by um, um, a scientist. His name is Colin Martindale. Um, so uh, here's the question. Like, if you look at uh, uh, history of art, what happened? I mean, why artists keep evolving the styles uh, uh, as they go? Uh, like, why Baroque happened after Renaissance? And why Impressionism happened in the 19th century? And why Cubism came after that? And is it just random uh, uh, or, or there is something fundamental in, in how these styles emerge and, and evolve. Um, so basically, um, uh, artists always has to generate uh, uh, new ideas in their art uh, to push against what's called habituation. Because if you keep looking at the same art uh, uh, for a long time, it's not interesting for you anymore as an artist, as, an, as a viewer. So uh, artists has to always innovate. Um, um, However, this innovation has to come uh, with what's called least effort, because um, if you uh, innovate too much um, uh, in, in your art, uh, it's unlikely uh, that people will, will, will accept that, will be uh, too shocking for people. So arts has to innovate to a certain degree, but uh, with a limited uh, amount of innovation, somehow to push against habituation um, according to the least effort principle. Uh, so that's exactly what we're trying to implement to make GANs uh, creative. Uh, so we developed what's called a creative adversarial network. It's a variant of GAN that's really designed to be um, uh, implementing this concept. Um, so um, how can we make it innovative uh, or, or push the novelty? There are different ways to do that. Uh, in particular, we looked at what's called um, style ambiguity, uh, which is um, a process that simulates uh, how artists break out of style. So suppose, for example, you are an impressionist artist living, living in the 19th century making a lot of ambitionist work, um, after a while, you have uh, exerted all possible things you could do within that style. You have painted all possible facades, all possible landscapes, all possible uh, scenes in that uh, style. And uh, at some time, you have to, uh, you, you, you already exerted all these uh, possibilities. If, I, if, I, if you are a new artist, even if you like that style and you innovate, there is no room for innovation anymore within the style. So uh, that's basically the reason why most artists at a certain point break out of style and try to create something new, 
coming up with something new, like, for example, Cezanne at the time or, or Van Gogh at the time trying to uh, break out of impressionism and, and do what's called, what was called after that post-impressionism. So that's exactly what we're trying to do here. Um, uh, how can we digest what happened in art history to, to certain points, until certain points, and break out of style to create something new? Can I jump into with a question? And this may lead you into what you actually did, but... You know, when I think about what you're proposing, that we develop a model of the way art is generated, uh, and in this case, the model kind of supposes that the artist uh, lives within some style, but there are uh, maybe uh, kind of random pushes of the envelope, if you will, uh, or maybe they're not random, but uh, that you know they're you know the, an individual art, artist innovates, but not too much. I kind of get that as a simplistic model for the evolution of art, but it does seem like coming up with some kind of representation for that and how that happens would be very complex uh, computationally. Yes, um, definitely. You have to simplify it. Yes. Uh... And, and that's what we managed to do, at least to a certain degree. Uh, we Suppose we give the machine lots and lots of images of, of art. Um, what we did was we, we give it art from the last 500 years of Western canon of art history. Um, and uh, we only give the machine the artworks and um, the style of each artwork, according to uh, styles um, uh, from, from art historian like Renaissance, Baroque, uh, Impressionism, Realism, uh, all these... Uh, art movement that happens. Uh, so this is the only thing that the machine give, gives the machine, the art, the, the images of the art and, the, and these labels. Um, so the formulation here is that uh, we want um, uh, the generator, we want to put the generator, the generator under two uh, opposing forces. In one hand, like a typical GAN, it need to learn the distribution of art, try to generate something from that distribution. But that would be only imitation, right? So, so how can you push it to be innovative? So um, we added what's, what we call style ambiguity. Uh, we want to basically uh, generate something that follows the distribution, but doesn't follow existing styles at all. Uh, so for, in order to do that, uh, the discriminator here has to uh, be equipped with a style classifier. So it, uh, the discriminator has to be able to uh, uh, tell for any new uh, artwork what style is it? Is it Renaissance? Is it Baroque? Is it Cubism? Is it uh, abstract? Uh, so uh, the generator's job here is to find out a solution that uh, uh, generate images, follow the general uh, aesthetics of art, follow the same distribution of art, but in the same time doesn't doesn't follow any existing styles because if it, it generated another impressionist art or another uh, Cubism art, it's going to get penalized. So you see the dilemma here. So it has to generate something that uh, fits the aesthetics in general, but doesn't fit existing styles, um, and that's what needed to um, uh, to uh, to innovate uh, in a style, but but follows the aesthetics doesn't really make something shockingly random that people won't accept, uh, and we see that right away in the generation. Uh, what it generates is always following the style, uh, the, the following the aesthetics, so you can see you can see good choice of colors, a good choice of uh, Compositional rules, a variety of texture, but at the same time, you cannot uh, easily put what it generates into uh, any existing style. It doesn't repeat what happened before. We don't see anything that looks like Renaissance portrait or impressionist art or 
or Cubism are, we can always see that it innovates uh, and, and try to make something new out of that. So um, these two forces actually um, kind of boost the innovation, but limit the innovation at the same time, because we pull it back to the distribution of art, so it, it doesn't go astray and, and try to start generating random things uh, that's going to be too innovative. How do you kind of enforce this rule uh, to maintain the aesthetic but not uh, the style within the GAN? Uh, basically, the loss function of, of the GAN, we change the loss function of the GAN such that it has these two opposing uh, losses. In one hand, it, it has a typical GAN loss, which is uh, uh, try to uh, generate uh, uh, images from distribution, uh, the real fake uh, loss as usual in, in a GAN setting. So it is, uh, that's the incentive to be uh, within the, the aesthetics. Uh, but at the same time, we have the style ambiguity loss, which is basically based on the style classifier uh, of, of the discriminator. Uh, we uh, compute some sort of entropy uh, score out of uh, that style classifier, and we we basically try to uh, maximize uh, this style ambiguity. Uh, so, in on one hand, we want to minimize the the, the the diversion from the from the um, uh, distribution of art, but at the same time, we want to maximize the ambiguity of the style. So, this implemented the two opposing forces. Okay, and now is your is the loss. The loss function, when it's evaluated, is a is that a scalar? And I guess what I'm asking is, like, do you have this issue where you have these two opposing components of your loss function that you know just average out, and kind of you lose all of the information and the nuance in the the two different components, or is that not an issue here? That is exactly what it's tried to do. I mean, it tries to find out uh, a part of uh, in, in in the surface of the optimization that you are doing uh, that in between the two. You want to minimize one, maximize the other. So it has to find some uh, sweet spot between the two. I'm curious about the training process. You've got, um, how many images did you train the GAN on? Yeah, the first version we did, it was about um, 80,000 images uh, uh, of, uh, from last 500 years of Western art. Uh, about 20 different styles uh, that we reused, uh, starting from Renaissance to all the way to uh, contemporary art, uh, almost uniform uh, among all the styles, make sure that we don't have any bias in the data. Uh, so it's, uh, roughly all the styles are uniform uh, in number. Uh, so the interesting, the interesting thing was that um, under these constraints, uh, we find that the machine tends to generate more and more abstract works of art, uh, less figurative artworks and more uh, uh, more abstract works of art, which is very uh, interesting. Why is that? I mean, why favor to generate abstract art uh, artworks and not figurative artwork? Um, for for the uh, we we kept thinking about that for a long time. So why is that? But when we look at um, uh, the uh, progression of uh, history of art. Uh, one thing we find interesting in the results is that uh, the machine under these constraints that we put uh, in uh, generates more and more abstract artworks and less and less figurative. We, uh, we hardly see any portraits or any landscape generated. It's more about uh, more more abstract and and more uh, uh, um, uh, it's a little bit surrealist uh, nature. Uh, so we were wondering why is that? Why the machine generates more abstract? 
Um, however, if you look at art history and look at the progression art history, and this some other research we have done uh, also, uh, we uh, actually find that it's it's clear that art history moves into a trajectory uh, from uh, figurative art uh, through the history uh, in the last uh, five centuries until we reach the 20th century, where uh, artists move into abstraction and and very pure abstraction, uh, and then later into uh, a color field painting and abstract exhibitionism and and uh, till contemporary art. So there is a clear trajectory of art moving away from uh, um, figurative art into abstraction, which basically it seems that the machine here figure, uh, figured out that um, uh, there's this trajectory and in order to uh, create novel art, it has to be more into the abstract uh, realm of art. So uh, under this constraint that we put uh, into the formulation, it seemed that finding a good solution, uh, abstract art provide more more a uh, good solution that fits these two constraints. Because if you start generating figurative art, it probably uh, gonna generate things that looks like uh, Renaissance or Baroque or or, or uh, other uh, classical styles. So it gets banalized. While for 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 abstract art, I think there's a, a lot of room for for experiment with the machine or results that the machine can generate that doesn't really fit into existing styles uh, uh, that, that easy. So it seems that's why the machine is generating more and more of these abstract works. Uh, the website is AICANICAN.io, and we'll put a link in the, the show notes. I definitely, you know, the, the abstract nature of the results are very apparent. When I think about kind of the, you know, art that might be generated by a GAN, what comes to mind is more like the... If you remember back in 2012, this woman tried to do a hand restoration of this uh, Spanish fresco, Equi Homo, uh, and basically made it look really, really bad. Um, and that's kind of what I think of when you, you kind of think of GAN generated images. At least, you know, the GANs are getting uh, a lot better now, but uh, these are decidedly abstract. Uh, and in fact, you have a gallery on the site that's kind of the 2017 version of the of ICANN and then a 2018 uh, version of ICANN and just kind of comparing the two visually. And I'd like you to comment on, you know, the whether, you know, this could be kind of selection bias. You handpicked, you know, the images kind of differently or something. But the... The art is much better in the gallery that you're displaying for 2018. Is that characteristic of the the second version of the model's results, or did you just pick better art for the website? Uh, no, just basically we train it more uh, and more data for longer time, and it gets it, it perfecting the, the process. So, so that's why it's getting better. Uh, and that's but- that's maybe not you know not intuitive that. You know, I would almost expect maybe that a counterintuitive result or the the, the opposite result. You train it, you know, with more. Uh, if you're training it with more uh, historical art, that it would tend more towards kind of reproducing what it sees than to get further out into abstraction. If that makes any no, sense. No, that's absolutely not. That's the whole idea. That uh, that. Again, would do that. Again, would definitely try. If you get more data and more training, it will uh, emulate the data better. Yeah. Uh, but exactly. But what we doing here is uh, the variant that we drive, which is creative adversarial network. Which is, uh, it, by definition, it doesn't try to generate anything that existed before. 
because if generate things that uh, uh, stimulate what existed before that get 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 penalized uh, because of the style ambiguity part of the loss. Mm-hmm. So it has to generate some, something that doesn't fit existing style at all, mm-hmm. uh, but follows the aesthetics. That's why it's always has tried to generate uh, uh, things that are uh, not uh, falling into existing styles, uh, and that's why it boosts the uh, boosts boosts the creativity uh, of the of the result. Um, so having more data will 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 not uh, make it emulate the results by definition because we still have to innovate according to the loss. Um, and actually, let me uh, discuss this um, according to your question, um, uh, why this is different from GAN's uh, generated images uh, of art. Uh, exactly, if you, if you look at uh, most of um, art generated by using GANs, uh, especially maybe a year or two years old, I mean, now GANs getting better. You, if you give it a board trace, for example, uh, as training set, it will generate what's called, what looks like a deformed board trace, right? So you can see kind of uh, um, uh, Francis Bacon uh, deformed uh, style of portraits in the generation. That's mm-hmm. a typical GAN uh, uh, images that, that you see in for several artists generating uh, uh, art using GANs are having this characteristic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happens in that case is actually the GANs are not uh, successful in generating uh, good portraits. Uh, so the GAN actually fails in generating the portraits correctly. And, and because of the deformation, that's why we will find it interesting. Uh, so it surprises you because of the deformation. And that surprise is why you might like it or might not like it as a viewer. That's why, uh, that's, that's the main aesthetics in, in GAN-generated images, the, 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 the element of deformation or failure to uh, imitate the training data. So, uh, and that's exactly what we pointed out in our academic paper when we derived the can, is that we, we, th- we thought, or we think of this uh, failure to imitate the, the distribution as a failure case, not a creative process. Uh, the machine here is not intentionally deforming the, the image. The machine is just failing to imitate the portrait. Uh, for us as a viewer, it's an interesting thing to look at, uh, but uh, the process here is not creative. The process here is an emulative process that just failed, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's totally what, not what we are trying to do. We're trying to really uh, be constructive in being creative, meaning that the machine, in our case, in, in, when we do a uh, can creative adversarial network, the machine from the beginning trying to generate something that uh, uh, have these two constraints put into place, uh, follows the aesthetic but doesn't follow existing style. So with these two constraints, the machine has to find a solution that satisfies these two constraints. Art history, if you look at the way art history progressed over time, there is a quote from an art historian, his name is Heinrich Wolblin, who say that uh, style has to evolve in a smooth way, like a, a, a rock rolling down a hill, meaning that uh, first, uh, style doesn't jump. Uh, we cannot have Renaissance moving into Impressionism and moving back to Baroque and then moving to Realism. No, it doesn't happen this way. Uh, style move in a very slowly uh, over time, from Renaissance to Baroque to in, in a very uh, ordered ordered way. Uh, so, uh, if you push the machine to generate something that doesn't fit existing styles but keep the aesthetics, it cannot find a solution uh, by mixing out, for example, Renaissance and Baroque, or mixing out uh, uh, Baroque and Impressionism, or try to find something in between. There is no way to find something in between a uh, solution. 
So the only way to, for the machine to solve this problem is really to, to extrapolate on that trajectory, figure out that there's a trajectory of, of uh, how art progressed and then generate something uh, on top of that. And that's why it generates more and more uh, abstract works. So by construction here is the machine is, is, is has a creative process in, in, in terms of generating the art. It doesn't emulate, it has to always innovate. And, and uh, the, the source of aesthetics of what you see is this creative process. It's not the failure to generate something uh, um, uh, from the data set. It's not the failure to generate a portrait. It's not a failure to generate a landscape. The real aesthetics here coming from the fact that it follows the, 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 the aesthetic rules, it learns the aesthetic rules, but try to uh, constructively, constructively generating something new. Yeah, I'm not sure I fully understand that. So what, what I hear you saying is you've got this, the, the history of art is this progression or sequence of styles and what your can kind of creative adversarial network is creating is something that uh, is art that doesn't exist kind of between two styles, uh, but kind of by definition uh, projects out from kind of the last element of that sequence. And uh, maybe you're just speaking figuratively and I'm trying to be too literal or rigorous about this, but, you know, why is that necessarily the case? Why is it, you know, why is it that the things that we're seeing are not kind of orthogonal to the sequence of uh, styles that we've seen? Yeah, it's a good question. Yes, it can. It can be. Uh, because at the end, I mean, uh, we, um, the machine tried to find a solution uh, given the constraint we give it. But let me point you to, out to uh, another piece of research that we have done. Um, in, in another research, we looked at um, um, uh, what representation the machine learns uh, if we teach it to um, classify styles. So we give the machine lots of images and style labels and train lots of neural networks. To classify styles, just to try and classify uh, whether the art is Renaissance, Baroque, Impressionism, and 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 so on, just style classification. Mm -hmm. But then what we looked at, we looked at uh, what representation the machine learned. So we look at the activation of of the of the fully connected layers in, in this network, and look at the um, uh, things like the principal component analysis of of these activations and the manifold of activation and things like that. And to our surprise, when you look at this. Um, we find that um, uh, the machine uh, arranged uh, the data in a chronological order by itself. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, we never give the machine anything about the date of the artwork or uh, that Renaissance happened before Baroque or Baroque happened before, before, before Cubism or Impressionism. We found that when you look at two-dimensional plot of, of, uh, of the data, uh, Renaissance come first, followed by... Uh, uh, Baroque, followed by, by uh, 17th century, 18th century art, and then comes uh, 19th century art realism and, and uh, Impressionism, and then move to Cezanne and move to uh, Cubism and huh. abstract and by itself. It's amazing. I mean, you, you can find that the, that the machine, actually, the art has evolved into a full circle going from Renaissance all the way to 20th century in a very smooth way. And the machine discovered that by itself. Interesting. Uh, I was going... I was going to ask what happens if you uh, tell the network kind of the sequence by feeding in dates, but it sounds like you don't have to. It figures it out. Exactly, exactly. And that exactly explains why uh, the machine actually uh, generated uh, art that is um, more um, uh, figurative, uh, sorry, uh, non-figurative and more abstract at the end. 
Can you elaborate a little bit on how you got to this two-dimensional or kind of time representation or sequential representation from the activations? Uh, yeah, so basically we look at the activation space and uh, look at the uh, uh, the modes of variation, the principal component analysis of this, uh, of this uh, activation space. And what we find that uh, first, you can explain uh, um, uh, almost 95% of the variance of, uh, uh, of the data uh, uh, using very few number of uh, components in the activation space, usually five, six components in all the networks that you have seen. And actually, the, the first two uh, dimensions, the first two modes of variation captured about 70% of the variance. And if you plot the data against these two modes of variation, you can always clearly see this progression, uh, chronological progression from 14th century till now, uh, where if you go uh, uh, radially across, uh, clockwise across uh, uh, that two-dimension plot, it has about 70% uh, correlation uh, uh, with, with time. So the machine figured out this uh, smooth transition uh, by itself, um, which basically tells us that the one thing we already know from art history is that uh, style progress in a very smooth way. Uh, it doesn't progress in a random way. It's, it's, it, it progressed in, in, a, in a very smooth way. And that's what the machine figured out by itself. If I were to create a model for the evolution of art, being someone who's probably as far as you can get from uh, someone who knows anything about this, but I would kind of evolve the the model that you've described where you've got these, you know, these kind of styles and then these perturbations in aesthetic uh, or perturbations in, uh, how did you describe that earlier? The, the kind of the simple model for the way art evolves? Um, you want to push innovation, um, um, uh, and there are multiple ways to push innovation, but you want to push innovation in a, uh, a least amount or least, with least effort. Right, um, right, right. Right, so you've got this, you've got this, uh, you know, this kind of s style that has evolved and you kind of innovate in these small incremental ways. And I guess the what's missing for that for me is it strikes me that there you, you have a lot of that and then you have these kind of big step function innovations that are much more dramatic than the small random innovations. Is that just not true from, you know, the kind of research into the evolution of art or is that a possible, you know, further extension of work like this to incorporate it, that type of model? Uh, actually, what you are saying is true. Um, there are uh, different ways artists innovate in their work. Uh, they can innovate within the style and they can break out of style. Um, and this is something that Martin Dale actually pointed out. Uh, uh, most artists uh, work within a style, meaning that uh, there is a, a predominant style um, for at any time in history. And most artists just uh, work within that style. Like if you are uh, in, in, in 17th century, uh, probably you are going to do Baroque. That's what's happening. And everybody is doing uh, within the rules of Baroque style. But what happened is at certain points, um, uh, artists really are, 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 uh, get bored of, of these rules that they are working with because they tried all possible uh, subject matter within that style and there's no room for innovation anymore. When you're working within the style, the only way you innovate is to look at different subject matter within the style. You try a different story, different, uh, different uh, 
uh, seen different things, but everything within the Versailles rules. But at a certain point, you you exerted all these possibilities, and then that's what that's where really uh, uh, important artists uh, come up with with new uh, break out of the style. That's what happened, for example, when Picasso break out of uh, of uh, what's happened and and painted uh, uh, Ladies of Avignon, for example, in 1907, uh, and that was. Uh, too innovative at its time, uh, it, and, and it led to the beginning of Cubism. Or earlier, when Munch uh, painted uh, the Scream and, and, uh, and early uh, works of expressionism. Uh, so there are always certain artists who break out of style, and, and uh, other artists start to copy these new styles and follow their, their, their uh, direction. And, and that's... Um, uh, the kind of innovation we plugged in into the formulation of CAN, which is style ambiguity. Um, uh, we don't want the machine to generate something that fits existing style. Because if it if, if generates something that fits existing style, it's, uh, the entropy, um, there will be no surprise. Uh, uh, the entropy will be very low for that part of the loss, and, and, and uh, we're trying to maximize that part. So the machine has to always generate something that, that the classifier, the discriminator, cannot classify, uh, be almost uniform uh, in terms of classifying that, that style according to uh, the style that you, you give the machine. Uh, so that's where the style ambiguity gets maximized. Okay, interesting. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, this, this work in creativity is kind of one area of interest of yours. Were there any principles or observations that you made in... Uh, working on this project that uh, kind of informed your broader work in computer vision? I have been focused more and more into that area in the last uh, maybe six, seven years, uh, trying to really um, understand more how to make the machine understand art. And, and uh, so gen- generation of art is something that came actually out of uh, long uh, progress in into understanding these concepts. So the earlier work that we have done in that area was things like uh, how to classify styles, how to classify the genre of art, how to classify artists, how to look at uh, artistic influences, uh, uh, and uh, even we have works earlier on how to quantify creativity in artwork. Like, can you tell? Can you look at art history uh, and and look at images only and and um, and their time stamps and find out artworks that are uh, w- that were creative in their time? And actually, we find that the machine, by 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 some formulation related to what's called network centrality, uh, could figure out important pieces of art through art history uh, just by looking at uh, uh, images of art and and their and their dates without knowing anything else about styles or about uh, about uh, artists or anything like that. So the machine figured out, for example, things like Picasso's Ladies Avignon or, or Monk Scream or or Monet Haystack as fundamental important pieces of artwork uh, uh, in history and that lead us that led us actually to uh, formulating uh, uh, the creative adversarial network as a variant of GAN that has this built-in process of uh, uh, style ambiguity uh, uh, as a constraint that helped pushing uh, the machine to be creative and and uh, innovative. Interesting. So really, really interesting work. How do you see this, uh, this work evolving? What's next? What's next is really we are focused now on, uh, focused now on, on how to 
what we proved is basically that the machine can, we can give the machine all this art history without any curation, just give it all art history, and it can generate almost autonomously uh, new artworks. That's what we achieved. Uh, so that's a proof concept that machine can produce things autonomously uh, 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 to some degree. Uh, but what we really want to do is to give uh, uh, artists a control over the process. How can an artist uh, control this generation uh, uh, to achieve something that you want to do, um, uh, not just uh, make it autonomous? And that's really what we try to do now, how to make it uh, more uh, collaborative and more um, controllable. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Ahmed, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about your work. Thank you very much. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.